Today is Palm Sunday, the sixth Sunday of Lent and the fourth Sunday of quarantine. Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. He's greeted with cheers and loud acceptance. See, your king comes to you. With kingdom language, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Throughout the Beatitudes, we've talked about this declaration of who belongs into the kingdom of God. As N.T. Wright says, it's a royal announcement that God is turning the world upside down, or rather, the right way up. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and turns the world upside down. Jesus comes in poverty rather than riches. He mourns over Jerusalem before his entry. He comes in meekness and humility rather than power and oppression. He comes on a donkey, not on a regal war chariot accompanied by armies. Palm Sunday is merely a continuation of what Jesus has been teaching all along. We've seen this throughout the Beatitudes and we see this throughout his entire ministry. The kingdom of God belongs to the poor, the oppressed, the disabled, the prisoner, the persecuted, and to many more. The powerful, the Roman Empire, opposes those who Jesus is lifting up. And in a few days, they will be responsible for the execution of Jesus. It's these very words and teachings that have led to Jesus' death. Tonight, we finish up our series on the Beatitudes. And if you will look onto my screen, we will read the Beatitudes together. All right, will you read with me? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight, we focus on being pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Being pure or purity is a word that conjures up a multitude of images. Often those are associated with Christianity. You may think of a mountain or a lake, a stream, something like that, that is pure and crisp and clean and clear. You might think of a metal like gold and its purity. Or maybe you have adverse reactions to it. Maybe you think of the purity culture that emphasizes sexual purity. There's Pure Flix, which is a Christian production company that makes movies that align with Christian values. It's not to say that Christianity has the corner on the market of purity, but it's often associated with that. Maybe now when you hear pure or purity, you're only thinking about hand sanitizer and Purell because that is something we are often thinking about right now. But what exactly is purity and why does Jesus include this in the Beatitudes? The importance of purity and cleanliness is seen all throughout the Bible. Beginning in the Old Testament, many of the rules that God gave to Israel were about being pure. Whether it involved a purity of fabrics that couldn't be mixed or purity in regards to sexual activity, the law often revolved around purity and it ran the gambit. This is why the Pharisees in the New Testament are so fixated on this throughout the Gospels. Their religious or ethical purity was often connected to their physical purity or cleanliness. What Jesus is talking about here is a purity in heart. 
Honestly, this has been one of the harder beatitudes to address. I don't necessarily get jazzed thinking about purity, especially a purity of heart, um, because I would say my heart is not pure. There are dark corners of my heart, and I know that I am sinful. It's not undefiled. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and I certainly fall into that category. My heart often harbors corrupt desires and corrupt intentions. It's difficult to gain or maintain any sense of purity because it seems that our biology and our sinfulness is against us. Pure in heart seems like a fairly straightforward idea or command. This word pure in the Greek honestly is not too complicated. It simply means to be pure or to be clean. It's often used to be physically clean or ethically clean. Here tonight, we have the latter with this phrase of being ethically clean, to be free from corrupt desire, free from sin and guilt. This next word, heart, is a very common word throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Hebrew understanding of heart was that this was the center of the the person. This is their will, their volition, their desire. Everything that comes out of a person comes from the heart. So being pure in heart is pure in motives, free from any corrupt desire, sin, or guilt. And for the Pharisees, a physical purity and ethical purity, this was one and the same. A physical purity meant that you were ethically and religiously clean. They were often neglecting their motivations. We see this throughout the Gospels, that they are known to be hypocrites. Which one of the things that I learned this week was that a a hypocrite was actually a theater term back then. And it was someone who wore a mask as an actor. So therefore, if you are pretending or you're acting, you're wearing this mask, you're a hypocrite. Then eventually it gets extended to be used figuratively as it's used here. Someone who pretends or deceives. Someone who has a mask on and you can't see their true intention or motivation. This is most commonly used to reference the Pharisee. They are often guilty of claiming a physical or an exterior purity while their internal motives are corrupt and sinful. By appearance, they are one thing, but their hearts betray them. Consistent with what we've taught throughout the Beatitudes is that these are not truths or virtues to achieve. What I mean by that is these are not universal truths because often those who mourn go uncomforted. Often the meek do not inherit the earth. The poor in spirit often do not have the kingdom of heaven. That's what I mean by they're not truths. They are, I would contend, are also not virtues to try to achieve. We are to not try to be poor in spirit or try to mourn or try to be meek. Rather, the, the Beatitudes are saying there's someone who is currently among your community that is likely this way. So most of the people in the Beatitudes is someone along the margins of society, the poor, the persecuted, the meek, the mourning. So why would someone who is pure in heart be included in this? That's a good question. I'm glad that you asked that. Is there something about being pure in heart that leads to an exclusion? Is it not desirable? What's happening here? For the Pharisee, it was certainly desirable. It was desirable to be pure in heart. They tried to achieve this. And much of the remainder of the New Testament goes on to attest to the importance of being pure. When taken as we've read throughout the Beatitudes, it becomes a bit more complicated. Being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, these are all people who are marginalized. But are people who are pure in heart, are they marginalized as well? I think something else is going on here, but hold on to that for a second. And let's get to this part. 
He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. This is another future-oriented promise and fulfillment. If you can for a moment, think of someone that you would consider to be pure in heart. The way that they often think, free from corrupt desire, everything they do oozes with a purity of intention, a genuine desire to seek God and to serve others. This could be a parent, a sibling, a grandparent, a mentor, a friend, anyone. Think of someone who you would consider to be pure in heart. Now, I obviously don't know who you picked, but I suspect many of these people have no problem seeing God. In fact, one of the reasons that you thought of them was likely their ability to see God in so many different things. The person that I think of is my mom. Hi, mom. She is often pure in her intentions and motives. She has a genuine desire for God. She cares deeply for others without ulterior motives. It can, fairly, it can fairly easily be said that she is pure in heart. But here's the thing. My, God, my mom sees God everywhere. If anything, she can't not see God. So why would this promise then be, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God? It seems like this is something that's fairly easy and something that's given for someone who is pure in heart. All other promises in these Beatitudes are lofty. The mourner will receive comfort. The meek inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. These are lofty and often otherworldly, or should I say, other kingdom-like promises. But then you have the pure in heart, and they will see God. What is lofty or hard to believe about this promise? I think something else is going on here. What if pure in heart is different than we maybe initially think? One of the books that I've used the most throughout the series is Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Willard is regarded as one of the great leaders in Christian spiritual formation. Divine Conspiracy and Renovation of the Heart are must-read books of his. And here's what he says in Divine Conspiracy. It'll be on your screen in a moment. in a couple of moments. And then there are the pure in heart, the ones for whom nothing is good enough, not even themselves. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. These are the perfectionists. They are a pain to everyone themselves most of all. In religion, they will certainly find errors in your doctrine, your practice, and probably your heart and your attitude. They may be even harder on themselves. They endlessly pick over their own motivations. They, want, they wanted to see Jesus wash his hands even though they were not dirty and called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. What a great word. Their food is never cooked right. Their clothes and their hair are always unsatisfactory. They can tell you what is wrong with everything, how miserable they are, and yet the kingdom is even open to them. And there at last they will find something that satisfies their pure heart. They will see God. And when they do, they will find what they have been looking for, someone who is truly good enough. I never heard anybody explain this like this before. When I first read this several weeks ago when our series was started, I wasn't 
quite ready to really dig into what was happening here because I knew that it would require my own work and what is happening within me because these two paragraphs so closely describe me. One for whom nothing is good enough, not even themselves. I'm a perfectionist. I can be a pain to others. I'm certainly a pain to myself. I can be nitpicky about doctrine and practice. I can be judgmental and cynical. But no more than anything, I'm harder on myself than I am anyone else. I endlessly pick over my own motivations, my own desire, my own desires. How miserable we are, as Willard says. These two paragraphs are, are me to a T. There's, I have very little contentment, very little satisfaction because I know there's always something else to be done. There's someone else who is better, faster, smarter, stronger. There's always room for being clearer, sharper, better at something. Because of this, honestly, it greatly limits my ability to see God. I can be critical. I can be cynical. I have a rational explanation for everything. I can only see the faults in something, especially the faults that I see in myself. Any prayer that's answered, I, I can explain it away. This is a coincidence and avoiding to see God break through at any point. And yet in my criticism and my cynicism and striving for perfection and for purity, the kingdom is open to even me. See, God's kingdom is not just for those who are poor and oppressed and on the margins. It's for those who are hard on themselves and others that can never feel like we are good enough. And that's why this promise is so sweet and so lofty. Because someone like me could see God. I could see God at work within me and in the outside world. That this burden of self-criticism would be lifted and I would be able to see God all around me. It's a beautiful promise that I crave and long for. That I hope for myself and that I hope for others who are like this as well. As I was preparing this week, I knew that there was the possibility that this would happen. I've noticed that as talks progress, I tend to push off the talks that are harder. And this talk got finished about a few hours ago. Because I knew to look within myself, it was going to be hard. It was going to be vulnerable. But I believe that as we begin to look in as we believe, as we begin to see the, the dark parts of our own heart, the places that we may be critical or the places that we struggle to see God, I'm hopeful that God will break through. Three questions that are helpful before we transition to our prayer examine, which is exactly for this reason. Three questions that are helpful in ways that we can pay attention and notice to what is going on around us. What is happening outside us? What is happening within us? And where is God? What is happening outside us? What is happening within us? And where is God? 
These are questions that are helpful for us to begin to see the work that God is doing in ourselves and the work that God is doing in our neighborhood and in our church.